Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Massive drive failures after a data center gas attack, a critical MySQL vulnerability you need to know about, and then is Cisco responsible for the death of an MMO? Hmm. Plus your feedback, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 284 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 15th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, our live stream and all of the downloads for the JB Network, that's powered by Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello. Hey, I noticed the uh, Tetris lamp is in a unique sturdy yes. configuration this week. Very sturdy. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> for the people who only... Actually, actually uh... The one L isn't lighting up properly. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know what the real tragedy is there, Alan? Uh, the vast majority of people listen to this show, and they never get to see the, the unique configurations yeah, of the Tetris lamp. Well, somebody ran a, a Twitter account with pictures of the Tetris lamp, but they got lazy. <laughs> well, it, that sounds like a Tetris lamp. Um, mm. All right. Well, we have, guess what? A big show. I mean, a really big show. We put the call out for some emails last week, and we got a bunch of good ones. The Roundup has got some really... Nice stories to cover, which I'm just like, I can't even wait to get to the roundup. But mm-hmm. we got to start with the news. Um, <laughs> this one sounds this one sounds pretty good. I, yes. I like the I like the headline you put in the show notes. Whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what's going on. Uh, so, yeah, um, ING Bank, which is a big multinational bank originally from the Netherlands, but uh, ING Bank's main data center in Bucharest, Romania, uh, was severely damaged over the weekend during their fire extinguisher test. Oh, no. Uh, so, um, in what is a very rare but known phenomenon, it was the very loud sound of the inert gas being released into the room to put out the fire yep. uh, that destroyed dozens of hard drives. <sighs> uh, the site is currently offline, and the bank relies solely on its backup data center located a couple of miles away uh, to run the banking operations. Thank goodness that actually worked. Yeah. Uh, well, not as quickly as it would hope. <laughs> we'll oh, okay. Minute. Uh, the drill went as designed, but there was some collateral damage. The ING spokesman uh, said, uh, confirmed that it was an inert gas issue. Uh, local clients were unable to use debit cards or perform online banking operations from Saturday between 1 p.m. and 11 p.m. Uh, because of the test. And she said that their team is investigating the incident now. I would imagine. <laughs> Could you, that's probably an understatement. <laughs> right. So this is a data center. So you don't want to use sprinklers, obviously, spraying water on yeah. computers that are turned on is really, really bad. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity plus water is bad, but computer plus water is bad and, and so on. And then we have uh, older systems used to use something like Halon, uh, but that's very bad for humans and so on. So inert gas basically just pumps in a gas that's not flammable mm. and it kind of pushes oxygen out of the way or, or you know, gets rid of enough of it uh, that it won't really, a fire can't happen. Uh, really not good for people either. But anyway, so it just, the gas is stored in these cylinders and it comes out at very high pressure. Uh, and apparently the pressure uh, setting on the ING one was too high and kind of like the sound of, you know, uh, when steam goes through a whistle uh, as you boil water for a kettle or whatever, yeah. it makes this really high-pitched sound. Yes. Uh, and uh, the vibrations of that damaged a bunch of the hard drives. No. Yeah. 
That's say, uh, the purpose of the drill was to see how the data center's fire suppression system worked. Uh, data centers typically rely on an inert gas system to protect equipment in the event of a fire, as the substance does not chemically damage electronics. Mm -hmm. uh, and the gas is only slightly decreases the temperature in the data center rather than wildly fluctuating, which can also damage hard drives and so on. Um, the gas is stored in cylinders and is released at very high velocity out of nozzles uniformly spread across the data center. According to people familiar with the system, the pressure at which ING Bank's data center uh, was higher than expected and produced a very loud sound that rapidly, uh, when it rapidly went out the tiny holes in the, uh, the nozzles. Uh, the bank monitored the sound and it was very loud. A source familiar with the system told us that it was as high as their equipment could monitor, over 130 decibels. Oh. Uh, and uh, so okay. it actually pegged their sound meter. And so they don't actually know how loud it was, just that it was louder than their equipment could measure. And hence why it, you know, hurt some hard drives. Yeah, I remember, uh, didn't we talk about, I mean, ages ago, an experiment where people shouted at hard drives? Wasn't that a yes, thing? That's okay. a, it's actually in the post. Oh, okay. If you scroll down, they actually have the video embedded if you want to show people the video. <laughs> yes, there it is. Uh, but it says, uh, here's, very little is known about how sound can damage hard drives. One of the first such experiments was done by... This guy here, right? Yep, that's Brendan Gregg. Uh, he wrote the details book. show you straight away. So over here, here I'm measuring disk I.O. operations broken down by latency. Um, I've also drilled down to disk I.O. operations taking at least 520 milliseconds broken down by disk. This is using D-Trace so I can do performance analysis of disks. <laughs> I'm applying a write workload to two JBODs, which are over here. <laughs> what I'm going to do is not recommended. This is not supported. Do not try this at home. Do not try this at home. Ah! <laughs> and he yells at the hard drive. And it's, it runs out the latency. Yeah, the, the, uh, the latency, yeah. And you can actually see it on the charts immediately when yeah. it goes over there. Ah! That's hilarious, Alan. of disk vibration. Vibration is a serious issue, and we can see the effect here that it's caused. You know, it makes me wonder about vi the racks vibrate a bit themselves all the time in yep. the machines. Uh, IX was going to do an experiment with that because uh, they had a vendor that was selling like a, an anti-vibration rack, and they were setting up their whole, a bunch of people at IX are into playing music, so they had like the whole IX band set up in front of the rack. <laughs> uh, I don't remember whatever happened to that. That's experiment. a good idea, too. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, Brennan Gregg who did uh, D-Trace. The, this experiment was done at Sun uh, with the Fishworks, which was their kind of GUI interface to all the debugging stuff that was built into Sun. Mm. Uh, but... Uh, Basically, the problem there is, you know, we yelled, it vibrated the drives, and then the head can't find the right spot, so it has to keep retrying or, or wait and then go back because it wa doesn't want to hit the hard drive and cause damage. And so uh, it, it makes the drive take a lot longer to do the work. Mm -hmm. um, so the test Brandon did there was just a demonstration. Uh, the problem they were actually diagnosing was caused by the fact that the data center there is in the basement of an office, so it's right like at street level, basically. Um, or right under street level. So and large so, trucks and buses. So they would, so they would see this uh, spike in latency on a regular basis, but not like exactly every 10 minutes like you would expect from a computer. So it's, it wasn't a cron job or something. And they couldn't figure <laughs> it out. Eventually they tied it to it was 
the the bus. It would stop at the stop, and sure. then when the diesel revved up as it pulled away, it would just, it just have vibration. Yeah. Just oh my god. Hard drives every time. Yeah. And of course, it's depending on the bus's like, schedule, it would there be variation when it happened. Exactly. <laughs> so it was almost every so many minutes, but not quite. It was always, you know, inexact enough because it was just the city bus or whatever. Right? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Something so say, to keep uh, in mind. Yeah. Uh, researchers at IBM have also investigated data center sound-related inert gas issues. They say the hard drive can tolerate less than one one millionth of an inch offset from the center of the data track. Any more than that will halt reads and writes. Wow. Uh, that's because uh, you know early disk storage had a much greater spacing between data tracks. But now we're trying to fit more and more hard drive or more and more data on the same hard mm-hmm, drive. Mm-hmm. And so the tracks are much closer together. And uh, you know, the data is much more dense and it's, you know, the tracking has to be exact. Uh, and to the point where we actually see manufacturers saying, well, this drive is guaranteed only for NASs with up to eight hard drives. If you're going to have more hard drives because of the vibration, you might actually, they want you to buy a more expensive drive that mm. has better, uh, you know, anti-vibration stuff. And it makes me wonder if NAS enclosures should maybe have, the, if the trays should have like rubber mounts in each tray. So when you slide it in, that individual slot is somehow isolated from vibration. I, I had a, a thing like that for my uh, server-grade hard drive that was in my desktop. Yeah, I, for my... It I've seen in towers. It fit in a, mm-hmm. in a uh, five and a quarter inch bay yep. instead. Yep. It had the big rubber things that actually connect to the hard drive and they yep. had pipes to keep the hard drive cool. Yep. Because, you know, back then, hard drives were uh, loud. Were loud. It was, it was, and they were, they were loud, too. And there was also... I had, I had rubber mounts for CD-ROMs to help, you know, isolate some of the vibration from that, too. So I've seen it in desktop PCs for a while, but you don't see it a lot in server in server grade hardware. I, I remember a friend just going overboard and like using a series of elastics to like suspend his hard drive so it wasn't touching anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was onto something. <laughs> uh, but you know, my thirty six drive array was worked fine, but the, you yeah, know, they're they're bolted to the concrete floor. Well, you have, but you have fine. to wonder if they if you could if you could somehow. Just totally theoretically remove all vibration from the case and the housing, would they perhaps perform better and longer? Possibly. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's it's in this case it was one big sharp vibration. Yeah. Right. Or pressure wave even uh, that yeah. really screwed things up. I mean that, that it, it was off the dB meter. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bank said it required 10 hours to restart its operations due to the magnitude and the complexity of the damage. A cold start of the system in the disaster recovery site was needed. Moreover, to ensure full integrity of the data, we made an additional copy of our database before restoring the system. Hmm. So it sounds like their backup site might not have been caught up. Yeah, that's what it does sound like, uh, doesn't it? And so they had to actually take an extra backup and make sure, like, re-replicate everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's but not also, too like, uncommon. You do kind of want an extra backup. Like, yeah. if, if you have your two copies, and now this is the primary, and you have no backup, you really want an extra backup just in case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they said, over the next few weeks, every single piece of equipment will need to be assessed because, well, that one hard drive in that machine might be still working. It might be about to fail because... How do you know? Sh- yeah. You'd have to start watching the stats constantly, yeah, I would yeah. think. Or you might even just proactively decide to replace every hard drive in the data center. Oof. That could be... Wow. That could be a massive... Did they say how many drives it is? Uh, No. <laughs> uh, it's still being assessed in ING Bank's main data center. It's compromised for the most part. I guess it's. it seems like the answer to this is obvious, but this would be a problem that doesn't affect solid-state drives. So yeah. perhaps another reason... One wonders, like, depending on what the pressure wave is actually like, what does that do to fans? Yeah. Machines. 
hmm. and, and other sensitive bits. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, something like mechanically, that. Mechanically, your big things now are that are left really are just fans and uh, and hard drives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess uh, if you had a solid state system and you ran all ARM processors or four eighty sixes, you wouldn't need fans either. <laughs> Problem solved. Power <laughs> uh, always going to need. Well, not always. I yeah, guess. yeah. That's. I guess if it's a low enough power system, yep. it might not. But yeah. This is a this is interesting. It's it, we, I feel like we keep hearing about this particular issue in bits and pieces as people discover it and then decide to talk about it. And there's probably there's probably a lot of people that have encountered things like this that just don't 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 have a chance yeah. to run a piece oh, in motherboard. Yeah. The other thing is you know some people don't bother uh, testing their fire extinguisher system, hoping that they never have to use it. And that's true too. Yeah, that's unfortunately very true. Well, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. Okay. Well, you guys can find a link to it if you want to read the whole thing on your own. I'll take a moment and tell you about Ting. In fact, if you could go to techsnap.ting.com, that supports this show and gets you $25 off your first Ting device or plan. I love Ting, especially when it comes time for a new phone. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You just pay for what you use. There's no contract. There's no agreements. There's no month-to-month for the phone. You just buy your phone. You get it onto the Ting network and... You're good to go. And so there's some companies like Apple that directly will allow you to buy a yearly annual upgrade. You go to Apple, you get the iPhone upgrade program, then you just bring it to Ting and you grab yourself the GSM SIM. They actually have a post up on their blog right now about which iPhone 7 is best to bring to Ting. I know some of you are probably thinking about it since it's shipping tomorrow. Uh, so you can check it out. They have a they have a post up about it, and they talk about the iPhone 7 and Ting. One of the things I think is the – I guess you could do that with the iPhone, or I think my personal favorite is really if you like Android, the Nexus program is great because you get those monthly security updates. I just got mine on my 6P. You just buy it from the Play Store. You can either wait till it's on sale because there's often sales. You bring it over to Ting. You go to techsnap.ting.com. You get a $25 service credit because you already brought your phone. And that'll probably pay for more than your first month of Ting service. That's what a great value Ting is. So techsnap.ting.com. Keep that in mind. You bring over the Android phone. You get you get the Nexus phone. You get the you get the the pure Google experience, which performs better, longer in my in my opinion. You can you could be running Nougat today if you want with all of the latest security updates, with no contract, nor the termination, and you only pay for what you use. It's six dollars for each phone line. So you got one phone line, it's six dollars. You got two phone lines, it's six dollars for each line. It's just how it works. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. They give you a management dashboard to take care of all of this, and it's a really good tool. And they have really great customer service that'll work with you on your problem. You get to talk to an actual human being. But even if you're not a Ting customer, you could probably find something useful at their blog. They're posting all kinds of things all the time. So start by going to techsnap.ting.com. You can try their savings calculator. That's the Ting litmus test. See if they would work for you. Techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So there is a pretty serious MySQL flaw going around. Um, I think it's a zero day, isn't it? It's it's out in the wild now, but there's a patch that people could install. But of course, if they don't well, patch, it's, it's slightly more comical than that. But really, yes. okay, tell me. <laughs> I love so myself. This was a disclosed, so there's not really a zero day. But okay, I've seen some of the so, headlines kind of ascribing it as that. It kind of ish. Yeah. Okay, maybe. tell me about it. Break right. it. Break so, it down. So there's a critical MySQL vulnerability. So an independent researcher has revealed several uh, multiple. Severe MySQL vulnerabilities. Uh, this advisory focuses on a specific critical vulnerability that's CVE 2016-6662, mm. uh, which allows an attacker to remotely inject, inject malicious settings into the MySQL configuration file, uh, leading to critical consequences. 
Aha. Uh-huh. So the vulnerability affects all versions of MySQL in the default configurations, including uh, 5.5, 5.6, and 5.7 branches, uh, and also all the older ones, except for those aren't supported, so you shouldn't be using them anymore. <laughs> um, uh, for both local and remote attackers, although it requires authenticated MySQL access, so you have to like connect to MySQL and log in with a username and password. Okay. Or you know, use a web interface like PHP MyAdmin. But it also means it works via SQL injection. And since SQL injection is the most popular exploitation vector on the internet, yeah. it really does affect every MySQL server. Gotcha. Uh, the vulnerability it also affects forks of MySQL like MariaDB and Percona. Uh, the big difference is that uh, the reason this is going public is MariaDB and Percona have already patched the vulnerability but uh, Oracle hasn't, so they were going to wait. But at this point, Oracle has set a date when they're going to patch it, and it's not soon, so they release the information anyway. Gotcha. So it says here, official patches for the vulnerability are not available at this time for uh, Oracle's MySQL server. The vulnerability can be exploited even if security modules like SE Linux and AppArmor are installed with their default active policies for MySQL uh, or on any of the major Linux distributions. Uh, Oracle has decided not to release a patch until their next critical patch update or CPU that they do uh, like four times a year. Uh, so the official Oracle patch for this won't come out until the middle of October. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I'll just wait around. Yeah, but MariaDB and Percona have already released patches, and uh, this morning the Debian people uh, rolled that fix into their MySQL 5.5 package for the older releases that are still using MySQL. I think Debian has switched all their newer versions to MariaDB. I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, uh, Debian's 5.5 packages are being updated to include the fix, even though Oracle hasn't released a fix. Because, you know, people mm. have to have secure MySQL servers. Otherwise, yeah. things are going to get really nasty. Really yeah. Quick. Yeah. So, how does this work? So, the default MySQL package comes with a wrapper script called MySQLD underscore safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's supposed to safely launch your MySQLD. Mm-hmm. And it's included in the packages for almost every distro and so on. Yeah, and its yeah. job is to start the MySQL server process. Mm-hmm. This wrapper allows you to specify uh, an alternative malloc implementation, which is memory allocator. Um, so basically, there's a Google makes a special memory allocator you can use for MySQL that's supposed to give better performance. Use TC malloc rather than the, the malloc is built into the system on your Linux or BSD and so on. Uh, and so the shell script... Uh, reads the MySQL config file, looks for this one thing. If it's there, it uh, runs, you know, sets LD preload and loads a specific binary to override the system uh, function and then launches MySQL. Uh, the problem is that uh, most... Uh, my, or, hold on, sorry, I skipped a line. Uh, anyway, this wrapper allows you to specify the alternate malloc implementation and it reads from the config file. The problem is that most... Uh, MySQL tutorials, guides, and how-tos, and setup scripts that you ever find uh, tell you to chown the my.cnf file to the MySQL user, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually wrong. You shouldn't do that. Uh, even most MySQL security guides have this bad advice. Uh, really, you want the config file to be readable by MySQL, but not writable. So you really want the file to be owned by root. Of course, uh, right, yeah. Yes, um, this actually led to some clarity back in 2003. Uh, in 2003, there was a vulnerability in MySQL version 3.23.55, because that's what we used to do for version numbers, <laughs> uh, that allowed users to create the MySQL config file with a simple statement, select star info out file var lib uh, mysql my.cnf. So you could basically do an SQL statement, and it would write the result into the uh, config file. 
And so you could just do a select that was the config file you wanted MySQL to have, and it would write it out. And then next time it restarted, it, it would use your config file, uh-huh. uh, which was really bad. Um, so this issue was fixed back then in 2003 uh, in that the daemon will refuse to load a config file if it has the world writable permission set on it. And any files ever created by the out file query will always have the world writable setting set. Okay. So that they fixed that flaw 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. However, the issue has kind of reappeared in a slightly different way. Uh, the new vector is MySQL has this uh, general log feature where you can have it log SQL statements that it executes to a file. So you just set uh, general log file equals etc my.cnf and set global uh, log equals on and then select and then in quotes you put the content of the config value you want and then you set a global log off and now that file will be full of the the content you just ran the, the sql query you just ran beautiful now if you actually run mysql it's going to balk at that because it's got you know the timestamp and a bunch of stuff, and then like the line about logging being turned back off. Uh, but if MySQL has permission, you can write this config file anywhere. And if MySQL has permission, that would be if it's running as root, or that would be well, if... Well, MySQL runs as root, but then switches to its other user. But if, if anywhere the MySQL user can write to, which is what most people set their config file to, to right. allow MySQL to write to it, then you can do this. And so uh, uh, you could so do this... What's interesting is that you wouldn't expect... The MySQL server to allow a non-admin user to suddenly start logging, ad, making log files, and that's what up I was just going to ask. You can do this as a non-admin user, uh, apparently. Ah, uh, I imagine that will get fixed eventually. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So the the MySQL daemon won't actually like the config file you generate this way, but that's not actually going to stop the attacker. So hmm. here's how it works: <laughs> the MySQL D safe script, when it looks at the config file and pulls out that optional setting of a different malloc library it's not parsing the whole config file it's just like grepping for that one line oh so then it runs mysql d with an ld preload saying hey load this other library first and then start mysql right well that when that environment's available and you load that library that preloaded library could hook into libc's fopen call and clean up the config file before mysql d actually starts sure so it can either uh, fix the config file to just be valid with that LD preload stuff or make it completely disappear so that an admin looking at the config file won't even notice that it was there other than maybe the date, uh, but they could probably also fake that uh, on the file. Um, mm -hmm. And now, as root, this arbitrary binary that they've loaded is now uh, running in MySQL. Okay, that's pretty slick. So, so if I compromise your WordPress, I can upload this uh, binary into the WordPress directory mm -hmm. and then uh, trick your MySQL into loading this new config file that'll load that binary and now I'm running that binary as root on your system Yeah. when MySQL restarts. So I just have to sit and wait patiently until MySQL D restarts and then I have root on your box. <laughs> now that that is still predicated on the permissions being wrong on the my.cnf yes. file, right? But they are on so many people's servers it's not funny. Right, like you said, it's like Almost the recommended config. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's a problem with the default packages on Debian and so on. Yeah. I know I checked my servers and it's not, but I mostly set mine up myself. So okay, so if different. you could somehow, though, get MySQL to restart. Well, uh, yes, uh, then you'd have it right away. 
Uh, the other thing is, it's slightly more confusing than that. The uh, other issue is that the MySQLD safe script loads the my.cnf file from a number of different locations. Oh, so it doesn't so have while to be you've an created, Etsy. While you've created the, the right config file with the right permissions, yeah. if, if the attacker creates a my.cnf file in the MySQL data directory, which definitely needs to be writable by sure. the MySQL user because sure. that's where it's going to store the database, yeah. <laughs> uh, the script might decide to use that one instead of yours. How does that happen, though? Or in addition though? to yours. The, the script like goes through a list and, and finds oh, the first config I file. I or see. sometimes combines all of the config files I see. in a wow. certain order. That seems like an unpredictable mess. Yeah. So, uh, th- you know, the mitigation steps they list later in the article is to create every one of those files as an empty file except for the real one uh, and lock down the permissions on them. Oh, interesting workaround. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, even if you have the permissions, even if you know the package sets up the permissions for you correctly, if it doesn't create this dummy file in the one directory, then the attacker might still be able to pull this off. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, the chat room was asked, how do you get access to write that config file? Well, if the config file lives in the data directory where MySQL keeps all its databases, the MySQL user needs write permission to that directory. You would have to separately create a, a my.cnf file in there and a .my.cnf file because history um you know you'd have to create those and then specifically ch those ones back to root so that MySQL can't overwrite them huh and, and also you know depending on on the level of access they get they might actually because MySQL owns directory might be able to override that anyway yeah and all kinds of terrible uh, <laughs> all kinds so it reminds me of the, the little in joke we have at freebsd you know when you, when you say that something's still done that way for historical reasons we now say uh, hysterical raisins. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's so funny. Anyway, so the vulnerability was reported to Oracle on the 29th of July and triaged by their security team. It was also reported to Percona and MarioDB. The vulnerability was patched by Percona and MarioDB on the uh, 30th of August, or by the end of 30th of August. Uh, but because it had already been a long time and MarioDB and Percona had already publicly committed their patches, uh, an attacker could have easily figured this out, so they released this uh, uh, vulnerability announcement so that users will have a chance to fix it. Right. Jeez. Uh, during the course of the patching by these vendors, the patches went into the public repositories and the fixed security issues were also mentioned in new releases which uh, could be noticed by malicious attackers. As it's been over 40 days uh, since the reporting of the issue and the patches are already uh, mentioned publicly, a decision has been made to disclose the vulnerability with a limited proof of concept to inform users about the risk before the vendor's next critical patch update, which will not happen until the end of October. Uh, so actually some of the references in this uh, announcement are redacted. The uh, more complete exploit is actually not there because uh, they're hoping to wait for everybody to have the patch before they release that. Mm-hmm. But enough of a proof of concept for you to double-check that your server is not vulnerable uh, is included. They say, uh, yeah, no official patch or mitigations are available at this time from the vendor. As a temporary mitigations, user, users uh, should ensure that no MySQL config files are owned by the MySQL user and create root-owned dummy my.cnf files uh, that are not in use uh, in all the possible locations. Uh, there, this is by no means a complete solution, and users should apply the official vendor patch as soon as they become available. Yeah. Nice that you could do a few things. Yeah. So ch- and maybe it's and, a good exercise ha- at home to check your my.cnf file and see what the permissions are. Right. And uh, the MySQL, or if you use MarioDB or Percona, there are f- official vendor patches you can just install. Uh, but for Oracle official MySQL, 
Uh, there aren't yet, although it looks like some distros like Debian are going to push a patch into their package because nobody wants to wait till the end of October for Oracle. Well, you don't want to be known as the distribution that's shipping an unpatched version of MySQL. And of course, exactly. Yeah, boy, the system mess. Because who's more likely to be running the official Oracle version? Enterprises. So they're the. And, oh, so stupid. It's so stupid. Oh, what? Well, good catch. Thank you for breaking that down because it's 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 even more interesting than I thought it would be as when I had a passing glance at it. So uh, it's a good breakdown. Any other thoughts? Nope, that's what it for. All right. Well, then uh, let's shift gears and thanks. Give thanks over to IX Systems. It is probably without a doubt the best possible combination of a great community, a great company, great partnerships with companies like Intel and an understanding of how community works. They really are building the ultimate servers for just about any damn open source workload you might have. They were, you know, they've really been cranking out some really cool products recently. Check them out at ixsystems.com/techsnap. I feel like I should uh, I should I should probably give mention to the new free NAS beta cuz I think we mentioned it like 3 weeks ago or something like that. And now, look at that handsome screenshot they got on there. That is a good-looking new UI they've uh, whipped up for this thing. They have the brand-new uh, UI. They've got uh, um, plugins that are powered by uh, Docker, which is pretty cool, like a, a new extension system, which is going to open up to a whole bunch of new software to be able to run containers right there on your uh, FreeNAS rig. So if you're curious, check out the FreeNAS beta. And, yeah, IX Systems, the folks behind FreeNAS and, of course, TrueNAS, is just part of their huge investment in enterprise storage. IXSystems.com slash techsnap. Speaking of enterprises... Yes. Have you seen their uh, IX rack? Yes. Setup. The IX. Where do I go? Where do I go? Is blog. it servers? Uh, IX rack. Oh, yeah. 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 I know it's on the blog too, but the the product page is super slick. Ooh. Yeah. Gosh, I don't even have so, a need so this for it. Is, and I want if, it. If you want, uh, you know, if you've been looking at, you know, moving stuff to the cloud, but hmm. realize that it's quite expensive, and in particular, the bigger problem you usually have with moving all your servers into the cloud is that. Well, people at your office need to access the stuff on the file server, and your internet connection is only so fast. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and uh, so having this stuff on site means much faster. So how do you have both? Well, the IX rack is a solution. You basically uh, buy this thing, and it can they, they have you know smaller than a rack versions of it if you yep. don't need a whole rack. But the idea is that within one rack, you have everything you need to have basically your own Amazon cloud, right? You got uh, TrueNAS for big storage with redundancy, you know, you can get the multi-headed version uh, so that it has high availability, and then you get a bunch of uh, high-end Intel boxes to run your VMs on. It can run VMware, KVM, uh, Zen server, or uh, Kodak data, uh, all whatever VM system you want, right? So, and uh, because it's running in the TrueNAS for storage, it's, it's VMware certified, it's Citrix certified, mm-hmm. um, and you get basically everything you need to run your cloud, whether you like VMware, KVM, or Zen, uh, and it's what everything a, you need. What and a cool idea. Unlike Amazon, you can get 40 gigabit networking between your machines. Oh, man. And off into your network. And it's they still say 70% lower total cost of ownership than AWS, yep. too. Well, because so, in AWS, you're basically renting this rack mm-hmm, from Amazon, and Amazon mm-hmm. gets to make money off of it every month, whereas mm-hmm. if you buy it, you pay for it once. So start or you by, can lease it. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check them out. They're great. Huge rigs for all different kinds. Everything down from the free NAS Mini all the way up, powered by those awesome Intel processors that have just been killing it for this kind of workload. Check them out. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. 
Now, it looks like maybe Cisco hasn't been killing it and is wound up at the center of some sort of company bankruptcy controversy. Yes. What is going on? So this is an ISP uh, going out of business uh, ah. because of Cisco. Basically, so no wonder. Okay, okay. Yes. Uh, so yeah, bugs in the Cisco network gear at the center of a hosting company's bankruptcy fight. So uh, I guess this was a little while ago, but uh, there's a uh, an online game called Game of War Fire Age. Okay, uh, which is your typical melange of of swords and sorceries and and that kind of video game, and it was one of the top grossing mobile games for about three years, accounting for hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Its publisher, Machine Zone, uh, was furious when the game servers run by the hosting company PeakWeb kept going down, in particular when they went down for 10 hours in October. Uh, so two days later, Machine Zone fired PeakWeb, uh, citing the multiple outages, and then later sued, uh, trying to get some of their money back. Meanwhile, uh, PeakWeb is suing because they had a contract that they had to keep paying. And, and Wow. Pay. Anyway. That is messy. Yeah, and so then came the countersuit. PeakWeb argued in court filings that Machine Zone was avoiding its contract illegally because the software bugs that caused the game outages resided in faulty network switches made by Cisco. And according to PeakWeb's contract with Machine Zone, it wasn't liable for bugs in the switches. Womp womp. Right? It's like, so yes, we admit there was an outage, but our contract says you can only fire us if the outage is our fault. And the outage was the fault of Cisco. So, you know. We're in the clear. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> In December, Cisco publicly acknowledged the bug's existence, but that was too late for PeakWeb, which had already filed for bankruptcy protection in June, citing the loss of Machine Zone's business as the reason. Uh, the Machine Zone uh, PeakWeb trial is slated to start in March of 2017. Jeez. They say uh, there was buggy code in uh, virtually, or sorry, there's buggy code in virtually every electronic system, but few companies ever talk about the cost of dealing with the bugs for fear of being associated with error-prone products. Uh, the trial, uh, along with the peak web bankruptcy filings, promise a rare look in how much or uh, or how little control a company may actually have over its own operations, depending on the software that undergrids it. Right. So yes, I imagine most companies uh, would love to complain about how bad patching their Cisco stuff is, but they don't want to look like the ISP that oh you have Cisco gear and it's terrible. Uh, you know, I know for a long time companies advertised the fact that oh our network is all Cisco gear, no off-brand stuff. Mm. And it's like yeah. Well, it's not always a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, PeakWeb was founded in 20, uh, 2001 and worked with large companies like MySpace back in the day, uh, JDate, eHarmony, Uber, and had a $4 million a month contract with Machine Zone. Oh, my God. What the hell were they renting? My I, word. I could rent you like racks and racks of gear with like infinity bandwidth for a lot of this $4 million a month. Four, $4 million a month? That's what it says. Maybe they meant a year. It's, yeah, but I see the words on the screen. It says four yeah. million a month. Even a year. That's that's a lot of bandwidth and servers and so on. They, I don't know. I don't know how many servers this, the game took. Maybe it was took like a lot of servers. It but. would shock me if like World of Warcraft or any large MMO took that. spent anywhere near that much on their servers. Exactly. I don't know what's going even on. Even with there. staff, even with staff factored in. Yeah. Maybe yeah. in a year, definitely. But in a month. Yeah. yeah that's, that's. They need crazy. to get the IX rack. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, that deal began April of 2015. Uh, it was to keep the game of war running with uh, fewer of fewer than 27 minutes of outages a year, right? Because that was you know the 99.99% uptime guarantee. Uh, the, that's what the court filings show. According to Machine Zone, the hosting service couldn't make it uh, a month without an outage lasting at least an hour. Uh, they had one in August of that year that traced to faulty cables and cooling fans. 
So, you know, that one actually seems like they couldn't uh, blame that on someone. Don't buy cheap cables. Uh, but they say Cisco's networking equipment became a problem in September. Uh, this is a person familiar with their operations who requested anonymity because they're discussing a lawsuit. Um, the company's Nexus 3000 switches began to fail after trying to uh, implement a process, a routine computer-to-computer command. And because Cisco keeps its code private, Peak Web couldn't figure out why it was having this problem. Are they? Is that like code for because it's not open source, they couldn't audit it themselves? Yes, although I don't know that Peak Web really had the ability to do that. Yeah, that would be a, that's a pretty big assumption to just assume you could dive into Cisco's iOS code and have any idea what the hell it is and what you're doing. Well, I think in particular, like, they, they, uh, with these Nexus and so on, you don't even get, like, a, a command on it which to check the amount of free memory and how the CPU is doing or something. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with these high-end switches because I don't bother. Um, uh, person, uh, the person familiar with the situation says Cisco denied PeakWeb's request for an emergency software fix, and as more switches failed over the next month, the hosting services staffer couldn't move quickly enough to keep the critical systems online. Hmm. Uh, finally, late in October came the 10 hours of darkness. Three people familiar with PeakWeb's operations say the lengthy outage gave the company time to deduce that the troublesome command was reducing the switch's available memory and causing them to crash. Uh, the company alerted Cisco. Uh, Machine Zone's attorneys wrote that uh, PeakWeb has aggressively sought to place the blame elsewhere for its failures, and then it came uh, to preventing downtime. Later in December, after you know the company had already lost the customer, Cisco confirmed PeakWeb's uh, analysis and that it had replicated the bug uh, in its lab and issued a fix. Uh, and you know, so PeakWeb then. Included that in their uh, evidence saying, well, look, Cisco's admitting it was their fault. So you can't say that we were deflecting blame to Cisco because it was actually their fault. Uh, they say uh, network equipment such as switches and routers, which carry the world's Internet and corporate data traffic, tend to be especially difficult to fix with software patches. Hmm. Uh, in particular, some of these Cisco switching setups, you have to upgrade all the switches at once. And so how do you have high availability? Because... Yeah, they, yeah. you know, I guess thinking back when we had a few core Cisco switches, there were a few times we shut down. We just told everybody, okay, you know, 3 o'clock, we're shutting down the network for a half hour. Right, and, you know, planned maintenance is one thing, although this one seems to be... So, nobody yeah, liked it, though. Both. Yeah, uh, but yeah, these ones seem to be mostly unexpected, though. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure if we, if we asked around the industry, lots of people have had similar issues with their giant Cisco things in the past. Uh, maybe just not quite as spectacular that they ended up losing a $4 million a month account. But I would go out of business, too, if I lost a $4 million a month. Yeah. <laughs> um, say, in one previously unreported incident in 2014, a glitch in Cisco's Invicta flash storage systems corrupted data and disabled the emergency room computer systems at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital for more than eight hours. Uh, Cisco later froze shipments of the Invicta equipment and discontinued the product line. So it sounds like they couldn't fix the bug. Yeah. Um, in another unreported case, a Cisco server in 2012 overheated inside a data center at chip-making equipment manufacturer KLA Tencor, uh, forcing the facility to close and costing the company more than $50 million uh, for that day. Holy smokes. Yeah, um, this is definitely a tough spot to be in. Uh, you know, I've been on both sides of this. Uh, you know, I've been the ISP and I had the problem and had to respond to the customer, but I've also been in the middle uh, where, you know, my ISP has a problem, but it was my customer that experienced the thing. Yes. Right? So, like, even if I have an SLA with the ISP and they, you know, it's like, oh, we give you back 
5% of the monthly cost for every hour we were down, that covers what I paid them, not the money I would have. You know, if I give the same refund to my customers, I've lost a whole bunch of money. Yeah, it's like uh, here at JB, we have an SLA on our Comcast business line. And I think we've gotten maybe the most $300 ever, which, right. which doesn't even cover one month of service. And it certainly doesn't cover the fact that we couldn't record shows during that time. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, for me, uh, the worst case that happened one time was uh, an ISP switched from manually configuring their switches to, like, some central management system. Oh, boy. Uh, and they apparently didn't note in that system that, you know, a couple of the my switch ports I was paying for one gigabit. And so... One day, suddenly, a bunch of my servers downgraded to 100 megabit. <laughs> like, what? And I didn't know. Oh, yeah. Like, I wasn't expecting yeah. the switch to suddenly change its configuration. Yeah, of course. And only give me 100. And then we try to stream a live event, and there are a bunch of servers that are, like, topping out at 100 megabits, and, like, the users are getting horrible, laggy streams and buffering because the server's trying to send 300 megabits across the 100 megabit link. Uh, and it caused huge problems for us. And, you know, the ISP, our ISP admitted it was their fault. And they give us a large credit uh, of, of, you know, basically almost a whole month of mm-hmm. all the servers we're renting from them. Oh, that's good. But that didn't cover what we lost from our customer not being able to use enough bandwidth, you know. Yeah. That, that and not to mention the damage of their, their opinion that. of your service. You know, they, they, yeah. they don't know it's your ISP's fault or the data center's yeah, fault. They think it's, it's, it's the... And no matter how much I say it is, they're not going to... They're like, well, yeah. you should have picked a more expensive ISP that was better. Well, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And... Uh, you know, they also going to the feds. Not only does it cover what we lost from not getting from that customer, uh, it doesn't cover what that customer lost from having to refund their users because the stream didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, that customer leaves Scale Engine, then um, you're out for it a recurring cover revenue. All the the future yep. months, the next couple of years, we made it would have made off that customer. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a really it can be a very frustrating situation to be in because it's like. You know, it can be one or two hops above you that the problem is, yes. and you have no control over it. Yes. Um, or you know, when it's in, you know, I had similar problem with the the transcoding when uh, the QuickSync stuff didn't work, and it's like, well, I, I'm not, I'm clear if it's uh, Linux, our software vendor, uh, the driver vendor, which is Intel, or the silicon vendor, which is Intel, that is the problem. But we have to switch to Nvidia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like ah. Yeah. So I definitely feel their pain in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is a uh, boy. Especially if your whole business is uh, like hosting yep. online gaming, that's yep. time matters. And, uh, you know, then it just makes you want to screw it. I'll just rent stuff in the cloud and make it somebody else's problem. That's exactly where I was going. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SnapOcean and make it somebody else's problem. Get a ten dollar credit and spin up your own rig for free for two months at the $5 price. DigitalOcean.com is where you go to learn more. They've got data centers all over the world, so you can be big-time worldwide. They have an interface that is to die for. It's the best UI I've ever seen to manage anything like this. Multiple virtual machines all over the world with software templates you can you can spin up from or just build it from scratch. They've got free BSD with ZFS support available if you like that. You can add your SSH, SSH keys as you're creating the machine, manage DNS, create snapshots, destroy the machine, transfer it. It is such a cool setup, and it's really fast to get started, which is great. Because if you've got a great idea, you want to just try something right away, run over there, spin up a droplet. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. You can try it out two months for free. They also have hourly pricing which is super nice if you want to just experiment with something. But buckle frickin' up. They've just announced high-memory droplets. This 
Wow. Is I awesome. wonder if that has something to do with supporting ZFS suddenly. <laughs> Look at this. 224 gigabytes of RAM. $2.50 an hour. <laughs> they have also, of course, 16 gigs, 32 gigs, 64 gig, 128 gigs. They just recently added SSD block storage as well that you can attach. It's all all exactly. SSD so based. You get the the machine with uh, you know 16 gigs of RAM or so or more, depending on how much storage you want, uh, and you FreeBSD and ZFS, and then you ZFS on top of the block storage, which you can make whatever size you want between one gigabyte and 16 terabytes, and you can just keep growing, and you can have more than one of them if you need more than 16 terabytes or you want to mirror them or whatever. Yeah, man. And you can get it all set up. Uh, and you just keep growing the storage as you need it, and you're only paying for what you need. Uh, and you can now rent machines with as much RAM as you could possibly want. It's it's awesome. DigitalOcean's a great service. They've got great, great documentation because they've actually hired people to sort through it all, edit and spiff it up, and make sure it matches their uh, standards and their writing guidelines. So they've got a great API that also means there's a – because the API is really straightforward and they've actually dedicated some time to it – the community has responded and created a bunch of open source applications that you can just use today to manage your droplet, or you can just look at the API and pretty much figure it out. And also, they've got libraries to snap in with pretty much any language you use. It's it's an ideal setup. DigitalOcean.com. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean's all one word, and it's how you support the show. DigitalOcean.com. And go check out that new high-memory droplet for those RAM-intensive workloads. I'm just trying to fantasize of what I could use that much memory for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I can figure something out. Maybe like running out of RAM. Hey, uh, this is nice. Just published a couple of moments ago the new episode of BSD Now 159, Net Scaling mm -hmm. Privacy. Is it Flix style? Yeah, it's uh, Netflix is uh, using FreeBSD to encrypt all of the uh, video streaming traffic so that uh, your ISP, your government, and your nosy Wi Fi sniffing neighbor can't tell what movies you're watching. That is so nice. That is well, that sounds like a fascinating episode too, Alan. I will definitely. Well, in check particular, it out. it's about how they modified the FreeBSD kernel to make it fast enough for it to actually work. Ooh, because you know, there's like between uh, in 2012 when they started with the Open Connect appliances at ISPs, yeah, they could get uh, eight gigabits out of a single box. Okay, now their top end S all SSD boxes can push 90 gigabits a second. Holy crap! If they suddenly have to do all the encryption in software, mm. it gets a lot slower. Mm. Uh, and you know they talk about how they use send files so that instead of uh, the web server saying, "Hey kernel, read this off the disk and then give me a copy of it," and then encrypting it and then or and then sure. sending back to the kernel sure. and say, "Hey, please send this to the network card." Yeah. With the send file system call, you can be like, "Hey kernel, uh, read that file and send it out this socket on the network card and mm. don't even give don't I don't I'm the web server I don't even want to hear about it. Don't Just tell me when me. you're done." Right, so they built that, and they're like, well, we want to add encryption, and that'll make that not work. And so they're like, well, what if we teach the kernel, so we just say, hey, send this file at that socket and encrypt it with this key. And so how they did that. It's a really interesting story. That does. Episode 159, that does sound interesting. 159 mm -hmm. of the BSU Now program. Go get it in HD. That way, this is about the halfway mark of the show, so you get more Jude right as we wrap up. BSD Now, episode 159. And with our news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks.
Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. I think that's how everybody's emails came into us recently, with with the exception of maybe one or two who emailed us directly at techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Val writes in with our first one. He's got uh, some follow-up to 281 and I think like an additional question. You want to take it? Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, he wrote in in episode 281 and he had his... uh, ESXi virtual machines that were written uh, previously in Linux VMs and they were really slow talking to the FreeNAS Mini he had over NFS. And or well, she. At least that's, what could he be thought, she. that's what he thought the issue was. Yeah. I so said, Alan had recommended I move my NFS shares over TCP and possibly play with the R size and oh, W yeah. size settings to get the performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he looked at that but found that he was already using TCP and that R size and W size don't really make a difference in that case. Okay. Uh, so he didn't have to make any changes there. Okay. He said, Alan also recommended I perform some tests using DD to test the copying files from the NFS share but writing to dev null instead of the hard drive to eliminate so you're actually benchmarking the right thing. Because uh, like, you wanted to test the read speed, not how fastly you can, how quickly you can copy from the NAS to the local disk, right? Because then if the problem is a local disk, you, it looks like your download is slow when that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. So he did his DD uh, of a uh, three gigabyte video file from his free NAS to dev null in his uh, sonar VM. And lo and behold, he got a transfer rate of 100 megabytes a second. Okay. So that rules out free NAS and NFS as being the culprit for his problem. Uh-huh. So he then performed the exact same test. Uh, this time only the source of his file was reading the three gigabyte movie file from the VM's local disk. And lo and behold, DD states the file transfer rate was only 30 megabytes a second. Mm. Says, Holy crap, only 30 megabytes a second from a local disk. What the hell's going on? Yeah. So fast forward a few days later, after research and pouring through various forum posts, I finally was able to narrow down the cause of my headache. Back when I bought my VMware server, I ordered the add-on Dell SAS 6 slash IR RAID card adapter uh-huh. and neglected uh, to do any research on that specific card when running with VMware ESXi. Turns out that that RAID card is a non-battery-backed variety and uh, as a consequence has the write-back cache permanently disabled. Oh. Uh, combine a non-write-back cache RAID card with ESXi and you're looking at miserable disk performance issues because yeah. it's being a sync after each uh, yeah. one. And as per the various forums validated my uh, answer uh, to a search. So now I'm uh, on the market for a Perk 6i with a battery uh, to replace my existing piece of crap RAID card. Uh, <laughs> but at least now I know that what's going on with my server issues. Um, your other option, obviously, is to have the VM images be stored on the FreeNAS. But then, you know, you only have 100 megabits of bandwidth between them on your gigabit network, although you could do multiple gigabits to your... Uh, the FreeNAS Mini does support two NICs, doesn't it? I think so. Yes. Uh, you can... I knew with the free NAS Mini XL, there's an optional upgrade to get a dual-ported 10-gig NIC if uh, that is an option you want as well. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, the free NAS uh, Mini is uh, VMware certified to work with ESX as well. But anyway, he says, I really want to thank you guys for finally helping me figure out the extremely irritating issue. Your show and really the entire network provide both entertainment and value informing us and the IT folks. Mm. Uh, keep up the amazing work. Thanks, Val. So, so yeah, uh, uh, that's interesting thing there huh? is when you do a benchmark... Uh, this is advice from Brendan Gregg, who you saw shouting at servers earlier. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, when you do a benchmark and you get the result, the first thing you do is ask why, yeah. and then you ask why, and then you ask why, and yeah. then you ask why, and then you ask why. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, why am I only getting 30 megabits a second? It's like, well, let's first see, it, was it the network? Nope, the network was fine. Is it the local disk? Oh, okay, it was a local disk. Why? Oh, the RAID card is uh, not ha- doesn't have a write cache, and so it's 
waiting for the disk to acknowledge each individual write of an individual sector, and the disk can only do that so fast. And the latency that means we're limited to this many IOPS, no matter what the disk sizes, and, mm-hmm. and quickly it all goes to hell. <laughs> yeah, and it's nice. That's a pretty solid fi- uh, follow up as well. So uh, uh, I'm glad we could solve. Uh, I'm glad we could identify the problem. Uh, too bad we couldn't solve it with just a setting. But got Val pointing in the right direction. Exactly. Jacob writes in. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. Thanks for the great show. I recently became a patron to support the show. Thanks, Jacob. We really appreciate that. I have a question regarding uh, my home network VLAN setup. I have a reasonably configured home network, Ubiquiti Unify Gateway, two Unify switches, and a Unify wireless points and cameras. I have a VLAN configured and different devices connect to different VLANs, e.g. servers run on VLAN 10, where computers run on VLAN 20, other home devices run on VLAN 30, etc. I understand that a VLAN is not a mechanism for security, i.e. put devices on different VLANs will not give you isolation. Uh, I am wondering what is the best way to properly separate them. I think maybe I can configure the firewall on each port on all my machines, but that doesn't sound scalable or really easy to manage. Or maybe I should get a simple device to act like a gateway firewall for all VLANs, which essentially make the Unify switches routers. But that doesn't sound right either, as I have two ports on the same switch running the same VLAN. Then my solution will require lots of, of firewalls and ends up becoming unmanageable once again. I see lots of people are, take, are talking about VLANs and how VLANs bridge security and isolation. So I feel like I may be missing something. I don't have any VLAN security configuration experience, so I'm keen to understand how to properly set up security between VLANs. Thank you so much. So normally with a VLAN... Uh, your switch doesn't do any routing. So he has layer three switches that can do some routing. Uh, so if you don't do that, then it means that if a machine in VLAN 20 wants to talk to a machine in VLAN 30, it has to go through your router. And the router decides whether it's allowed or not. So you can set up a PFSense that even just has one port, but then divides that port into three virtual interfaces, one for each VLAN, and can decide what machines can talk to what. You know, So VLAN, machines on the homeland can go to the internet, but they can't ever talk to your work machines or vice versa. Um, but, you know, VLAN security eventually, you know, if the VLAN set up across the switches, then it means that any machine can show up and say, oh, yeah, I should be in VLAN 30, and maybe that's allowed. Or you can lock it down so that only certain switch ports are in certain VLANs. But in the end of the day, you know, it depends what your attack vector is. You know, I could walk up to your switch and unplug your machine and plug my machine in that port, and I can read that VLAN. Maybe that's not that secure. Uh, but basically... Uh, if you tell your switches to stop doing layer 3 switching and you force all the traffic between VLANs to go through a, uh, a PFSense, then uh, that thing can, as your gateway slash firewall, can decide whether traffic should be allowed between, you know, whether that one machine and your home device should be able to talk to your work computer. Uh, like at my house, uh, none of the machines on the homeland, which is basically the top floor of my house, are allowed to talk to the work machines, except for my one personal computer, which can go to uh, like two machines in the work VLAN, but that's it. Hmm. Um, except for the printer. The printer in the office can be printed to from any computer in the house, and that's all firewall rules that decide that. Uh, but that's all done on the PFSense that basically lives in every one of the VLANs and, and routes the traffic through them. Obviously, um, if I forced all the traffic between my NAS and my home computer to go through the, the router all the time, that would kind of be wasteful, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, why does the router have to deal with the gigabit of traffic when I'm copying files around? Um, and so it comes down to that. So, yeah, uh, if you use dumber switches or turn off the layer 3 setting in your switches, then the gateway will, uh, each machine 
you know, when it when you're talking to an address that's not in your subnet, you always go through the gateway. Uh, now, in your case, it sounds like the gateways might be on your switches, and your switches are allowing the traffic between the VLANs. Uh, but you can do that with your firewalls, like gateway, like uh, PFSense. But you don't need more than one. You can have just one, and it just lives in all the VLANs and does the right mm. things. There you go. Very nice. And uh, if you want real security, then you have to use IPsec, and that gets really complicated. And uh, it does sound like he's, you know, I like I like that the, the ubiquity setup. Once you get it all working, it can be a really nice setup for people. So it sounds like he's he spent some time getting it dialed in. Dean writes. Probably could do it with for yes. less money by. I was going to add that, but I. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it yeah. does work, and people Seems love like it. Good, so. And yeah. also an employable skill too to pick up. Uh, Dean writes in ZFS versus all of the others. Hey guys, love the show. I'm about to embark on a battle trying to get an IX rig a Z30 in my environment. Awesome. We have a larger IT overlord that likes the stand- standardized quote unquote on production rigs. We have an EMC VNX now. And they have put forward Hitachi and NetApps as preferred solutions. I've also seen new products like Reduxio at Reduxio.com. And there is lots of misinformation as to the features of all these different products. I like the idea of ZFS because it seems to be transparent as to the features it provides. NetApp claims to have block checksums and links us to that, which seems confusing because I was under the impression that ZFS was the only file system to provide this. Are there checksums built on top of? Well, and they also you don't. He's he's making the assumption they could be doing some sort of third party cron job that goes through and just right. Well, their checksums are in the metadata somewhere. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, the one thing I knew about uh, so the NetApp storage file system originally way back like it started from a fork of FreeBSD's uh, UFS file system, and so it can only do 255 snapshots rather than an unlimited number, because they basically just have a bitmap that says whether or not each thing is in each of the possible 255 snapshots. Uh, And so that has some advantages in that um, having one snapshot or 255 snapshots doesn't make a performance difference, which it doesn't in ZFS except for when you're trying to list the snapshots. Uh, But, yeah. So uh, the NetApp is okay, but... The ZFS is better, and if it costs one less zero, then <laughs> it seems like yeah. pretty obvious. I would you actually. Know, it's, it's great to standardize, so just convince them to buy four Z30s instead of one. You know, he says, I read the server guide for your boss, which works great, but I will need to convince uh, not my boss, but the larger corporate server group. So I'll need some technical firepower. I, I would bet if you called IX, yeah. you could get a good conversation going. Um, yeah, uh, that can help. The other one, um, yeah. Some of these, you know, these uh, corporate server group guys get so entrenched. It's like, how have you not heard about ZFS and that it's like the awesome sauce? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Send him a video of me. <laughs> yeah, I just sent him an episode of TechSnow. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I was thinking more like the the ZFS talk from VBSDcom. There you that's go. A very good introduction. That one kind of assumes you've you've heard of ZFS and used it once or twice, and now want to know what more can I get out of it. Well, that might be else. That might be useful. Yeah. Uh, I would also, one of the things you could mention, so if they like to standardize on things, the nice thing about standardizing on a ZFS-based product is you have some flexibility there. It's a a standard file system that you could plug into lots of different types of systems and recover data from or build or migrate or move to. It's not a proprietary locked-in vendor-controlled solution. If if your IX rig dies somehow or something, you can import that pool on Linux, on FreeBSD, on Solaris, on a Mac if you want, 
You know, ZFS is ZFS is ZFS, basically. Yep. Well, yep. Open yep. ZFS is Open ZFS is Open ZFS, but because Oracle has their weird version of ZFS that's not the same anymore. <laughs> but uh, you get the point there. Gives me the um, shakes. I had another point. ZFS, ZFS, ZFS. <laughs> the other thing I guess I would mention, and this is, I think, I guess not a huge technical oh, point, uh, the The Z30 is VMware certified and Citrix certified and mm. a bunch of other stuff, so it's it's fairly standard, right? Like, it's not, you know, just somebody cobbling together a free NAS to, to put into production at your enterprise. It is, you know, a, a recognized certified configuration. If you want to talk about value, one of the big value points of going with a file system like like ZFS is it means that your technicians or the people that need to learn how to manage it can install it on their workstations or in a VM or on a computer on their desk and they can get real hands-on experience with something that actually applies to the central storage of their network. You don't have to go buy another multi-thousand dollar box to try this. You could throw it on a spare laptop and just play with some Uh of the features. I don't. I don't think there's a NetApp for less than fifty thousand dollars. So that is. So when you, what you have to do is challenge their definition of standardizing on things because there's an obvious advantage to the company. To the there's a there's an obvious business advantage if you frame it correctly and think about some of the advantages it has when it's something that's it's a common technology that's an industry wide standard that you can implement on all kinds of systems. The kind of training and flexibility and and future growth paths that gives you is huger than one single vendor's. Temporary yeah. solution where God knows how they've implemented checksums or God knows how they do this or that. It's black boxes are not big. Uh, I'm not big on black boxes either for that. Yeah, stuff. I, like I never really thought about how much value there is in the fact that you can have your technicians play with ZFS on their laptop. Yeah. Uh, to learn it, well, you know, with the NetApp, it's like, well, we have the one NetApp and yeah. nobody gets to play with it. Yeah. Uh, and. Not to mention, yeah. you could then eventually start using it on your other servers that aren't the central disk, and that it could become a it could become a standard to use across the entire enterprise. So, there's your standard. Franco writes in with Puppet versus Ansible. Love the show, and I listen religiously. I heard you need questions, so I thought I'd give you one. I've heard a lot of ruckus about Puppet being replaced by Ansible, and have done a deep dive into both. I was wondering, since I seem to remember that Alan uses Puppet in his deployments, what's his opinion on each, and what are the benefits that keep him on Puppet? Thanks, Franco. Uh, currently, I say I'm public because I haven't managed to change. <laughs> it's um, working. It's working. There's a research project that's going on at work right now is, is looking at Salt or getting to a newer version of Puppet, which has always been a pain in the past, and we expect to be even bigger because uh, Puppet 4 changes everything. Um, we haven't looked that closely at Ansible. Um, Ansible's quite a bit different layout. Like It's all about pushing stuff pushing commands into a server and then it does it whereas puppets more of comparing the server against the manifest and then making the changes required to get it into spec um i know lots of my friends use and love ansible uh i've just not had time to really learn it to 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 make a comparison yeah, and I think also it's it's one of those things where you both can serve the job, and so whatever you kind of have gotten your head around and have in production, there's not yeah. a, there's so generally not a huge reason to change. Generally, Ansible is usually faster to get going. Yeah, that's kind of what my take is. Very good at getting the basics, but some of the more complicated stuff we do, we do it a certain way because of Puppet, but it wouldn't have there wouldn't be a great way to just translate that into doing it uh, an Ansible way. You know, for example, Ansible doesn't have the concept of exported resources where you can say, hey, this server write each have uh, basically the way we do our Nagios setup, each server writes its own Nagios config with the information the server knows about itself. 
uh, and it stores all those in the Puppet database. And then the Nagios server just says, hey, give me all the Nagios configs, and then all the configs show up on the, the machine. <laughs> hey, last minute submission into the, from the chat room from C. Uh, ButterFS for Windows is in, everybody. <laughs> oh, boy. Have at it. Have at it. ButterFS for Windows. That sounds good. Well, so, Franco, hopefully that answers your question. Thank you, everybody. Now, if you thought maybe you got a question in that you haven't heard yet, don't worry. We've got another episode coming up, and we'll get them in next week's episode, episode 285 of the TextNet program. In the meantime, we'd love to get your questions. Go to Jupiter Broadcasting, click our contact link, and then choose TextNet from the dropdown, or you can also email us directly, TextNet at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love getting your systems network administration questions and all of the above, and I also love hearing about your setups, too. So, and you know, most of the time, you guys are pretty good at keeping them tight. Every now and then, they get a little long, but you're pretty good at that, too. So thanks, everybody, for sending those in, and we'd love to get some more. But that does wrap up all of our feedback for this week's episode, so it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our worldwide intelligence network at techsnap.reddit.com, like I believe this first one. So Yaume, I think is how you say their name, mm-hmm. apparently has been discovered to have the ability to install any app on your device remotely. I guess this came up in a support forum asking about the purpose of the Analytics Core app on uh, one of the phones. After getting no response, a user reverse-engineered the code and found the app checks for new updates from the company's official server every 24 hours. While making these requests, the app sends the the device identification information with it, including the phone's IMEI model, MAC address. Uh, I don't know what the N-O-N-C-E is, the nonce. I'm not sure what that is. It just announces just a random number, basically. Okay. And the package name as well as a signature. If there's an updated app available on the server with the file name analytics.apk, it'll automatically get downloaded and installed in the background without any user interaction. So any anything named analytics.apk. <laughs> and, of course, the question goes, what about if you're doing DNS spoofing or something like that? Uh, and Maybe uh, the announce helps. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not necessarily the kind of uh, yeah, news. The you Android like to hear. experience is supposed to nag you and allow you to choose to install the updates, not yeah. just have them silently upgrade. I that. also, I also read this week that uh, Samsung will be pushing out an over-the-air update to their Galaxy Note Seven devices that haven't been returned to automatically limit the battery charge capacity to sixty percent. Oh. Well, originally I heard it was just going to make them stop working. Yeah, that was a rumor. They actually decided sixty percent, and. Um, I gotta, I gotta wonder. Like, is that a prompt that the user will get to install, or will that just install in the background too? Mm. I wouldn't want to install a, 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 a patch like that. Of course, I right. Although that you know, you're supposed to phone return to the phone and get yeah. a new one that yeah. doesn't have the problem. But. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is a great one. It's got a great image, and I think it's about a paper. It's uh, covering a paper that was released. Correct. Tell me about this yeah, round. So this item. is uh, uh, Nully the Elephant from Bug Hunt, uh, Bug Bounty HQ. And this is a quick paper about typical uh, attacks that uh, this researcher finds have proved successful throughout his bug hunting. So basically, if you're interested in uh, hunting for bugs and doing bug bounties, he's actually uh, got a post up here about uh, the nullity reference type one that he sees all the time Mm. that you uh, might have some success with to actually hunt bugs. So it actually is all the information you need to see what happens when you try to send a user with the first name of Null and the last name of Null and so on and see what happens. Hmm. The parents in the audience will recognize this common situation. I didn't do it. She did it. 
I didn't do it. He did it. That's what's going on right now. 324,000 financial records with, with the CVV numbers from the back of the cards stolen from a payment gateway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a couple of different cust- there's a couple of different companies. One's Blue Snap, the other's Regpack, but neither one of them is admitting to the data breach here, and they're putting they're pointing their fingers at each other. And uh, of course, it started on Twitter. The finger pointing. Yeah. Well, the CVVs <laughs> are never supposed to be stored at all. Right. So whoever did that did bad. Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't want to admit to it either. It kind of sounds like a drama. I wonder if uh, by next week or so we might. Uh, Find out the background of that. Well, not next week, but maybe after. Yeah. Uh, this next one's great. Why writing correct software is hard. It's hard. Yes, and why math alone can't help. Yes. Uh, so, you know, this is basically there's this concept of provably secure software, and it turns out it doesn't work that, it's not quite that easy. Mm, yeah. Anyway, interesting video. If you yeah, good video, it. and you guys could check it out after the show. This is probably worth noting just from a server side, server standpoint, industry support standpoint. Today, what? Google is announcing that ASP.NET is a first-class citizen on the Google Cloud platform. Wow. I didn't think people still wrote web apps in ASP.NET. <laughs> well, I bet but a lot of, I bet a lot of businesses. School, I guess. A lot of businesses probably do, and they want to host their code. Yeah, well, or... I'm sure running ASP.NET and Google Compute Engine is a lot more secure than running it on an IIS. So. <laughs> hey, that, that might be a good option. Okay. That's that's not one I would have expected Google to spend time on. Yeah, I was surprised that's when I saw it too. It must be a much bigger market for that than I thought. That's why I tossed it in there. So this one's interesting. 5,300 Wells Fargo's employees fired over 2 million phony accounts. Yeah. So basically, Wells Fargo had this thing where the cashiers and so on had to, you know, they had a quota. They have to sell at least this many, upgrade people to like this many accounts because the bank makes all their money off fees. Uh-huh. And so they wanted to get customers to sign up for these accounts that have more fees. Uh, well, obviously, most customers are like, no thanks, go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the employees would just open accounts for those customers anyway. Or, or just never ask them and open it up. Wow. Be like, oh, you thought you wanted this. Uh, or whatever. That's why that happens. Yeah. And then people getting paid all these fees, or, or, or end up paying the bank all these fees, like $5.99 a month for a checking account they didn't want. Or getting signed up for a credit card they didn't ask for, which is especially bad because that can mess up your credit rating. Uh, just just having getting new credit cards at the wrong time could mean you don't get your home mortgage approved and can't buy a house and so on. It gets all kinds of nasty. Uh so yes, so while Wells Fargo is blaming all the employees mm. and firing them, uh, although that wasn't all at once, it was total over a course of a number of years. Still, it sounds like it's an incentive structure, not an employee problem. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in particular, it was Wells Fargo being demanding unattainable goals from their employees, and so the employees are like, well, I can either get fired for not performing well enough, or I can fake it and get and keep my job for a while, and then when they figure out that they're fake, they'll fire me. I guess. <laughs> sure. Maybe nobody will notice. And. Uh, it, other developments this week looks like Wells Fargo wasn't the only bank doing this. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's good to think about, though. It's good to be aware of it. This next one, there's something you need to be aware of, according to the FBI director, your webcam. He covers it up. He says there's some sensible things you should be doing, and that's one of them. That was on Wednesday. He says you go into any government office, and we all have little camera things that sit on top of the screen, he added. They all have little lids that closes down on them. You do that so people who don't have any authority don't look at you. I think it's a good thing. Sure. Um, you mean like this? <gasps> Where'd Alan go? Where did Alan go? Yeah, a cover would be good too. Yeah, it's built into my webcam. Yeah, that's becoming yeah, more and more common thanks to people like James Comey. Well, it's because <laughs> if, you, if you put tape over it, when you actually want to use it, then you have all this sticky crap on the lens. 
Yeah, right? yeah. Like putting tape over your webcam uh, looks fine. Or it works fine, but if you actually need to use the webcam on a regular basis, you want something closer to a lens cap, right? I think some of the irony here, though, is we have had stories on this show about the FBI, FBI hacking using people. the webcam. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That's the irony of the story. That's mm-hmm. that's one you got to think about, I guess. Okay, and then, and then there's other people who are like, uh, I'll I will gladly trade my privacy for a working driver for my webcam <laughs> under Linux or BSD or whatever. True. true. Yeah. <laughs> This is very true. Data knots exploring LinkedIn's Open 19 rack standard. Yes, so this is actually a different uh, a podcast. Dun dun dun. Uh, and, uh, called Data knots. Data knots. I've never listened to it before, but they seem to have an interesting topic that week. So yeah, episode yeah. fifty might be worth a listen. The Open 19 rack standard. Yeah, I don't know why LinkedIn is do it like they're trying to be Facebook, but uh, it might be because they're now owned by Microsoft. There could be something there. Uh, like, yeah, I think this project would have started before that. Yeah, you're probably I think they right. Were just trying to be a Facebook. Uh, the big difference is that uh, 19 inches is a standard rack size, where Facebook made their own special that required different actual racks, uh, which is never going to catch on, right? Like, if I build a new data center, I want to build use racks that no standard server will ever fit in, only the special Facebook servers. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, even if the hardware is all open, it mm-hmm. doesn't really help me if I can't buy something off the shelf ever. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Uh, pour one out for LibTIFF. Yes. Apparently, this is interesting. Gone so, uh, LibTIFF is a very important library that's used all over the place. Almost every Linux computer, I'm sure, has this installed because it's required to provide a bunch of graphical tools that do things like make websites work. Um, and so, they had the like a libtiff.org domain for a lot while, uh, but then one day it just stopped working because the person who owned it didn't renew it and it got swatted <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and so, they moved to this other one. Uh, what was the domain? I just closed the tab. Uh, RemoteSensing.org, is that it? Yeah, yeah. RemoteSensing.org had, had been the official domain of the site for quite a while. Ah. Uh, and yeah, uh, a couple weeks ago, that one dropped off the internet and is now some company trying to sell you satellite. Oh, images. no. Uh, and so there's no official site for LibTIFF anymore at the moment. Uh, and the mailing list is like, well, there's this other mirror that's left with a different random name. <laughs> Uh, it's like we could we could use that. And it's like, but you guys really need to get uh, a domain sorted out. Yeah, yeah, seriously. It's like they don't cost all that much money. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, That's too bad. Yeah. Uh, Osgeo.org has is like the remaining semi-authoritative mirror for this, <laughs> <laughs> and it runs Apache two point two on Debian. So. Oh, okay, oh, okay, all right, okay. Come on, guys, come on. Yeah. We're going to end the roundup on a couple of tweets. This first one really made me smile. I guess this is from uh, at sub T, Casey Smith. This, uh, uh, yeah, we've covered some of the uh, hacking stuff he's done before. Yeah, the, yeah. The reverse engineering stuff. So a true vendor call, he tweets. This is the true call. Our software protects you from Buffalo overflows. Um, he says, excuse me? What? Buffalo overflows. Okay, and he's got a great picture of buffaloes falling off the side of a cliff. Buffalo yeah. overflows, Alan. <laughs> so this is what happens when the salesperson thinks they know what they're talking about, but really doesn't, right? They've, they've read some literature, and they're just spouting what they read. Right? Buffalo overflows it's, might be my favorite, yeah. though. Yes, our software protects you against buffalo overflows. Uh, don't worry about those buffer overflows. That's not a big thing. You, the buffalo overflows are the things you have to worry about. It's written in C hashtag. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this is definitely... Oh, <laughs> that's another great... Uh, 
but yeah, uh, I don't know. This this is why I like it when I call IX and I talk to someone that actually knows right. what a buffalo flow is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Instead of a buffalo overload. Makes me makes me uh, appreciate it when you can have an actual technical conversation. Corey Doctorow uh, has our next tweet: How not to keep your wire cutters from being stolen? Hashtag five uh, years ago. Yeah. Uh, so this is a picture of a pair of wire cutters uh, secured by a cable to the floor or whatever. Secured by, you might say, a wire. Yeah. <laughs> In such a way that it would be very easy to use the wire cutters that are being secured to cut the cable that is securing them and then walk away. Oh, that's precious. That is so precious. That is, that's, that's such a metaphor for so many things in IT sometimes. <laughs> that's uh, a good one. It reminds me of when we, uh, when we, uh, before Scale Engine, we had an uh, internet gaming cafe thing and we had uh, all these computers secured to the floor with this like air grid graph aluminum cable and such that it would take a, l- a long time to cut through it with wire cutters. Mm. Unless you had really, really big bolt cutters. And then it was like, well, at that point, you can bloody well have our slow computers. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's there's a point. So uh, speaking of the Twitters, he's at Alan Jude. That's Alan with two L's. And I'm at Chris L-A-S. That stands for Linux Action Show. And you're welcome to follow us. And the network is at Jupiter Signal. And uh, be sure to you check the Twitter link. What's that? There's one more Twitter link. Uh, at BSD now. The, no. The oh, oh, in a, the roundup. Oh, oh, oh! I thought you meant like what? Our Twitter handles? I'm like, what? Do you have an I extra account? I, I don't have. <laughs> I don't need additional Twitter accounts. You should have what? The Tetris lamp? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. I don't own that one. Somebody else has the Tetris. Twitter okay. Lamp. Okay. Here it is. This is from at IT Girls. Or I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as Jessica, and she says, "I'm I'm used to seeing weird security products at work." But this is getting ridiculous. These better not have Bluetooth. Security tampons. Super security tampons. Super security tampons. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need is something that works with a smartphone. It's, it'll come, Jessica. It'll come one day. <laughs> it'll all be connected to your smartphone. But don't worry, I'm sure it'll be Bluetooth LE. So what could go wrong? <laughs> all right. Now, I well, think. We talked about that one like three weeks ago, right? With the vibrator that yep. uses the cell phone and, yep. and reports all the information back to the company. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yep. If you'd like to submit a story to our roundup, techsnap.reddit.com is where you go. Just a note, we won't be at our regular live time next week, so be sure to check our calendar at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Otherwise, you could normally catch us over at jblive.tv. And last but not least, one more plug for those emails, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash techsnap. Or I'm sorry, slash contact, and choose techsnap from the dropdown. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>